a few years back, there was a man in my office to discuss a, a few problems. And as we sat down and he started to unpack his life and uh, unpack his problems and even his current situation, what, we, what I heard was a pattern of jealousy and yelling, and being belligerent, fighting. I remember even him having a, a, like a visceral reaction to what he was telling me. So not my visceral reaction to hearing him, but his visceral reaction to telling me about the screaming and the violence uh, in his, his past. And as we got further into it, we got deeper into his heart. Many, not all, many of his actions were rooted in this inordinate desire for approval. Like he, he demanded to be liked and loved. And when he wasn't getting that, particularly from his wife, he'd become hostile and aggressive. Like his, his greatest fear was being betrayed or rejected. Like he demanded this approval. And at that point when I sat down with him, he had been married and divorced three times. Martin Luther said that underneath every sin is an idol. And underneath every idol is a disbelief in the gospel. So like this, man, if we're really going to seek change, heart transformation, we have to get underneath just the actions and to the heart. Not just what's external, what can be seen, the yelling, the screaming, but also what's underneath that, what's the source of that, where does this originate from, where does it come from? And that's James' goal this morning. James 4, just look at verse 1 with me. We're going to slowly walk through this chapter, essentially like a mini-series within a mini a mini-series within a series on conflict, because James is piercing and helpful and insightful on our relationships and the conflicts in our relationships. So only three verses today. James 4, verse 1. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war with in you. Now, I've, I've told you about James kind of being like a wise sage, which he is. Uh, this morning, it feels more like he's a doctor. A doctor. Like, before we get to the right prescription, we need the doctor to give us the correct diagnosis, and that's what James is doing. If you recall, or if this is your first time, James is writing to churches that, that uh, have some quarreling going on. Churches be fighting. And so he's talking to them. And like in the midst of their fights and their quarrels and their arguments and their posturing, he's talking to them and trying to uh, help and serve them in this. Some are fighting to be teachers. Some are fighting for posture and position. They're trying to get in with the wealthy people so that they can climb up the ladder, maybe on the backs of those wealthy people and push the poor people to the back and not acknowledge them. That's showing favoritism in chapter two. Some are maybe even possibly fighting over money. And he cuts through the mess of all, all these quarrels and fights with this question, what is the source of your wars and fighting? Now, if I was writing this, knowing their history, knowing their background and speaking to them, I'd probably write, uh, uh, cut it out. Like, you should stop. Don't do this. Just stop. What are you thinking? Just stop. But God's wisdom is not mere behaviorism or externalism or mere moralism. Do you know what I mean by that? 
It's not just about your actions. If you're doing this action, stop this action. God's wisdom gets to the heart of what's happening behind that action. And God's wisdom addresses this with the wars, the fights among you originate source. The source is the waging wars within you, the waging desires, the waging passions. He's saying essentially external conflict comes from an internal conflict. Like why do you fight with other people? Because you're fighting within yourself, in your own heart, between desires. Fights with others stem with fights from within. And this language of wars and fights, it can be fights and maybe battles in your translation, is all to paint the imagery of military uh, war and like entrenching yourself and camped and established. And that's what these desires are. They're encamped and entrenched and established in our hearts. And like, a, like when a doctor is precise on the problem that ails us and it's hard to hear. I don't know if you've had that experience or maybe someone in your family where there's this diagnosis and it's like, this is really hard to hear. That this is what's happening. This is what's really happening. So, so what James is doing this morning is also difficult to hear. can be hard to hear. Right? Because we tend to get defensive and self-justify why we were completely in the right in this conflict. And we lawyer up as in like we start making a case for how everyone else is wrong and that we're right. Like, no, there's no, no, no. What cause, what's the source of, of wars and conflicts among you? Uh, those people and them and that one and how they did me and what they said to me. Or even when we confess or apologize to them, we say things like, I I'm sorry I said that uh, because you did that to me. It's like, what? What just happened? Or we start blaming our conditions, Right? Like, I yell at you because I'm hangry. My bad. It's like, ah, this isn't just about a burger not being in your stomach. This is about some passion in your heart. There's something going on here. Like, we start pointing and blaming uh, conditions, our parents. Now, uh, I, I can tell you clearly and, and emphatically that those things are influential. Of course, your parents, the conditions you're in, lack of sleep, like, they're influential, but that's not the primary cause of your conflict. The source is our warring hearts, our passions, our desires. So if, if Dr. James is maybe cutting to our heart, and we're maybe even in this moment getting a little defensive because we start thinking about some of our conflicts and we're like, no, it was my spouse. Okay, let me disarm you. Can I try to disarm you to put your weapon down? Because of the gospel, you don't have to get defensive. You, you can allow Dr. James to expose your heart because in Jesus, you're secure and loved. In Jesus, you're declared righteous. So you, you can allow the Spirit to reveal the source of your conflict so that you can pursue peace and reconciliation in those relationships and, and grow in your relationships. Now, what are these desires that he's speaking of? Like he, he's, he's putting his finger on the, the source, the problem, but, but what is he talking about? Where when he talk about desires, you've got 
uh, kind of two broad categories that, that desires can fall into in what he's speaking of. I guess there's three good desires, but he's talking about two kind of broad categories that can fit into this. Evil desires and inordinate desires. Evil desires. This is not hard to, to kind of point out or to acknowledge, but that's like sexual lust, greed, envy, dominance, hate, murder, covetousness, arrogance, radical autonomy. Those are evil desires, right? And so he's saying, why are you fighting? Well, these evil desires within us. But, but often, those aren't inexperienced. In, in, in pastorally counseling people for a decade, evil desires aren't the typical desires that really cause and stir up a lot of conflict that I see on like an everyday basis. Now, you got maybe a big explosion. There's a lot of selfish ambition and greed. Sure. But in kind of the everyday-to-day relational stuff, friendship, marriage, it's, it's in this camp inordinate desires. And inordinate desires are good desires that are out of order. They're good desires that become too important. They're good desires that, that now have begun to rule us. So we don't just want something. We've got to have it. And so we want it too much, too desperately. And when we don't get it, we fight and quarrel. That, that's an inordinate desire, a ruling desire. So it started off as a good desire. And, and that's why I say, can say this for us, that, that many Christians, of course, with indwelling sin, we still have evil desires. But a lot that happens in our conflict is in this realm. That, yeah, we have good desires, but then it turned into something that ruled us, that we move from a desire to a demand, and so that we have to have it. So this, this is like acceptance, right? That's a good desire that you be accepted, you be cared for, your parents would parent you, comfort, peace. You have the good desire of a healthy relationship. That's a good desire. It's a weird desire to have, like, I would love to have a mediocre slash bad relationship. That's what I'm going for. Like, that's, that's my marriage goals 2022. A mediocre relationship. No, like, it's a good desire to have a healthy relationship. Good desire for friendships. Community is a good desire. Reciprocation. Like, we're in this together, and it's kind of going back and forth. And I'll think about some other things. That's a lot of, of people. What about food? It's a good desire. And drink. And love. Communication. These are all good desires that can become inordinate. That we love and must have. Really, the change is, the delineation is, when it moves from a desire to a demand. You can take the good off when a desire turns to a demand. Like, this is a good desire. Now I demand it. We're not going to say this is a good demand. That's when it becomes inordinate. It rules us. So I think, let, let's, let's nuance this a bit. The, the desire for food is a good thing. But that desire can become a demand, an idol, where we must have food to comfort us. And so instead of ruling desire, the, the desire is ruling us. 
the desire for healthy communication in marriage. It's a good desire. But it becomes inordinate when we must have it. We demand it. And you know what happens, like I told you last week, when a desire becomes a demand and we don't get that demand, let's stay within marriage right here. If we don't get that demand from them, we judge them and then punish them. That's what we do. Maybe not physically hurt them, maybe. But maybe not physically hurt them, but we punish them with what? Things like the silent treatment, cold distance, essentially putting them in the time out for two days. Or maybe not the withdrawing, maybe on the attacking side, we punish them with name-calling or insults or sarcastic put-downs. Because they didn't give us our idol, we pour out our wrath on them. Do you see the wisdom of James here? Like the wisdom of God here? It's getting to the heart of our conflict, of what's really driving this. Think about parents. When parents demand peace and quiet and their kids interrupt them, and so the parents get angry and lash out, because their kids are disrupting their idolatry. Parents aren't getting their desires turned demands. And so what do they do? Judge their kids and punish them. In his book, Pursuing Peace, Robert Jones states that these lists of of good desires that can become ordinate is endless. He says, we can demand from others affection, attention, approval, admiration, acceptance, and appreciation And that's just a list that starts with A. He says, when we demand these things, conflict will surely arise. So, can I invite you back to James 1 and not be a hearer only this, but a doer of this? This is going to take some action on your part to receive this, think about this, apply this, and respond to this. So, I, I, like, I want you to think about your most recent conflict. Or maybe the conflict you're in right now because of the drive here this morning. But think about your most recent conflict. What were the evil desires that brought about this conflict? What were the inordinate desires that caused this conflict? I want you to think about that. Merely telling yourself to stop it is not going to change your heart. We've got to get to the heart of the conflict. Not just modify our behaviors a little bit and it still be the same thing. Probably just manifesting in a different way over time. Again, Robert Jones, helpful. He gives us three questions to help us delineate or see when a desire goes from a desire to a demand. And he asked this, and I'm asking you this, does it consume my thoughts? Do I obsess about it? Does my mind drift to it when I don't have to think about other things, like when I'm showering? Does it consume my thoughts? It's just, it's in there over and over and over. Number two, do I sin to get it? So do I manipulate people or situations to get what I want? Do I bargain or nag or try a guilt trip to get it? So it's so demanding of us 
It's ruling us that we will cut corners, lie, uh, manipulate to get to it because we have to have it. It's a clear sign when it's moved from a good desire to an inordinate desire. Number three, do I sin when I don't get it? This sounds like my kids, but it also sounds like me. Do I pout or explode or pull away or gossip about someone when he or she doesn't give me my desired thing? I was asking for an amen there. No, okay. I'll, just, I'll keep confessing stuff. You, you guys stay there. You guys are great. No conflicts in your life. At this point, I'm in a conflict with you. <laughs> but do I sin when I don't get it? When these desires become entrenched in our hearts, ruling us and remaining unmet, fights will ensue. It's going to happen. That's what's going to go down. I mean, some of us desire to be uh, appreciated and accepted, but then it becomes a demand, so it rules our hearts. So what? We get bitter and gossip. Or we get belligerent and yell, like, like the man at the beginning. Some of us desire to be right. Like we want to know things and be able to communicate things, but then it becomes a demand and rules our heart. So when someone else is like arguing with us, instead of, uh, if we're not winning, what do we do? Assassinate their, their character? Or we argue about everything? It's everything. Or judge people as stupid because they don't see everything the way that we see it. Fights will ensue when good desires turn into inordinate desires. And this is what he goes on to say in verse 2, James 4, verse 2. You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, that's probably different if you have a different translation because in the original language, it is difficult to translate uh, uh, into English like where the punctuation goes. Like here in the CSB, it, it makes those first three uh, sentences into three separate clauses, but it could also be two clauses, and I, I want you to see this, because I think this really makes sense. You want something and don't have it, so you commit murder, and you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you fight and wage war. I think that's the best translation, because you see that parallelism there, right? The parallelism between you commit murder and you fight and wage war. And it fits better into this context because James has been painstakingly telling us that there is disorder and evil in the community because of bitter envy and selfish ambition. Back to chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. So we, we demand something and we don't get it, so we kill. We covet and demand something but don't get it, so we fight others. Desires become demands then we, punt, we judge others and punish them. That's the flow. That's the, the progression of conflict. Now, kill, kill could be literal. It could. And you're like, ghastly. How could James imagine that believers would kill? Uh, I don't know. I've read 1 Corinthians. It's kind of wild, right? But also, you got to know that James is writing to believers who are most likely, many of them, former zealots. What did zealots do? Fight for the cause. Nationalistic pride, let's fight for this. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that this is possible. But also, 
Maybe it's hyperbolic. He's just saying, you know, he's trying to make his point. But you got these fights that were like, you're willing to kill because you can't get what you want. You demand it that badly. But I think it's taking it similar to Jesus' words because he leans so much on his half-brother and Lord, Jesus, throughout this book. And what did Jesus say? If you've hate, if you have hate in your heart for a brother, you've killed him in your heart. I think that's what James is speaking of. But no matter which one it is, overall, he's just expounding verse 1. External conflict comes from internal conflict. Fights with others stem from fights within our hearts, our evil desires, or our inordinate desires. But then he, he says one more thing in this verse. We don't have because we don't ask. That's another item from Jesus. Jesus says it in Matthew 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be open. And then he gives this beautiful analogy of fatherhood. Who among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You have desires, but you're not asking your Father in heaven for them. Prayerlessness is a sign of independence. Prayerlessness is a sign of self-sufficiency. I have this desire, and I can get it on my own, make it on my own. I don't need to ask Dad. But then there's more. Verse 3. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And that first phrase from verse 4, I want to highlight because it's the connecting uh, hinge between 3 and 4. You adulterous people. So he's saying some of us don't have what we desire because we don't ask. Others of us don't have what we desire because we ask with wrong motives just for our selfish pleasure. So Jesus told his disciples, Matthew 7, to ask, right? But he also tells them in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And in my name doesn't mean tacking Jesus' name at the end of every prayer of yours. That's not what this means. This means according to his name, according to his will. That's what he's speaking of. Not, I want a Lamborghini, genie. I'd also like a genie in Jesus' name. Like, I'm just going to tag that on. So it's going to happen, right? Because I threw his name on it. No. According to him, according to his will. Just like he taught the first disciples how to pray. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Or as he lives out in the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, Father, please take this cup from me. So he asks, right? He asks. But then he also says, your will be done, not mine. 
So asking the Father in accordance with his will. In that manner also, it can break you from a demanding desire turning back and just being a good desire. Right? Otherwise, you're asking the Father to give you something to replace Jesus on the throne of your heart. You track with me? Does that make sense? What you're saying is, I demand this thing. I must have it. I want it to rule over me. And then you're asking the Father to give that to you, to usurp, usurp, struggling, to take over Jesus' place in my heart. This helpful, again, from Robert Jones. He calls it a staircase diagram, and I want you to see it. The throne represents your heart, and the cross represents Jesus, and the letters at the bottom represent your desires under the throne. So you've got the throne, a.k.a. stick chair, and then a cross representing Jesus, and then a staircase up to it, and all your desires are underneath it. He says this, in a well-ordered life that follows Jesus, our desires, whether met or unmet, are submitted and subordinated to Jesus. And I want you to hear this. You can read it with me. You don't have to do it aloud. In fact, a large part of the art of living for Jesus is learning to live contentedly with ongoing unmet desires. That's the art of following Jesus. When my desires remain submitted to Jesus, my soul finds rest, period, inner peace reigns. But he'll go further with that staircase and say, when our desires start to ascend the staircase and rise to the top of the throne, they compete with Jesus for lordship of our hearts. And so will I, I submit to Jesus and let him rule me, or I submit to my desires and let them rule me. Family, it's a, a silly drawing. What I'm trying to tell you is there's a sneaky revolution going in your hearts. A sneaky revolution where there's rebellious desires rebelling against the king of your heart and trying to ascend the staircase to take over and to dethrone the Lord of your heart. So we must fight this war in our hearts. The only other option is to fight others. I've told you so many times that wisdom and like daily decisions often comes down to a fork in the road. And either you can go this way that you actually fight the sin in your hearts or you go this way, not find this in your hearts and fight others because that's what's going to happen. Your inordinate desires are going to take over, going to rule you, and people are going to give you what you demand and then you're going to fight them, whatever that looks like. So we must recognize when our desires are, are traveling up that staircase, ascending that staircase. And that's what I was trying to get at with those three questions earlier, right? Three questions. Does it consume my thoughts? Do I sin to get it? Do I sin when I don't get it? Three things, just helpful. To understand what's going on in your heart. What is ruling me? What is the cause of this conflict in me? 
but I'll give you some more, some statements that can expose our inordinate desires. This is what they sound like. You must give me blank or I'll be angry at you or cold toward you or... That's an inordinate desire. When you're saying things like that. If only blank would change, I would be satisfied or content. It's become a rolling desire. It demanded... And what's difficult, do you you remember what I said? So many things for Christians are that these are good things. The blanks that we fill out here are most likely good things. But they become demands. I'll give you an example. Uh, If only my marriage would change, I would be satisfied or content. If only my kids would change, I'd be satisfied or content. If only my job would change, I'd be satisfied or content. Next one, if I don't get blank, then I become depressed, angry, or anxious. Last one, what I think I need or I desperately don't want is blank. So there's helpful to expose the desires that are ascending the staircase and trying to, to dethrone Jesus. That's the diagnosis of the problem of the fights and the conflicts in your relationships, your friendships, your marriage, our church, our community groups. This is what's happening. But like any good doctor, he doesn't just point at the problem, get to the problem. He prescribes, gives you some instruction, what to do with this problem. And what does James tell us in the next few verses, particularly 6 through 10? He tells us to repent. To repent. To submit to God, unsubmit to your ruling desire. Draw near to God, let go of your your unmet demands. Repent of letting the desire rule you. Turn from demanding it. Now, I'm not saying you should repent of the good desire, because that's a good desire. What you should repent of is letting that good desire become a demand, letting it rule you. And kind of kick it back down the staircase where it properly should be. Because I don't want us to become passionless and bland, stripped of any desire. That's not Christianity. That's not following Jesus. Following Jesus is a passionate, fire-stoking, holy desire for God. That's what it is. Because I don't want you to kill all your desire and just be like a robot without any... Uh, compassion, love, desire, motion, just nothing. This is how I follow Jesus. Never respond to anything. Reactionless. Emotionless. No. You repent of the rule desire, the desire ruling you. And turn to Jesus being the Lord of your heart. And having your desire submit to him. I mean, there, there's actually only one desire that can never become inordinate. Too much. And that's passion for Jesus. That you need Jesus. You desperately want Jesus. That you treasure Jesus above everything else. So if this is the, the diagnosis of our hearts, of our conflict, I want you to think about in our bad news of our desires becoming demands, we turn to Jesus by the good news of Jesus. I think about his life. Jesus is the one who submitted his life perfectly to 
the Father. He acted justly. He loved mercy. He walked humbly with the Father. And while our uh, desires ascend the throne of our heart, he descended his throne beside the Father to come and die to pay the penalty for our inordinate desires. He died to set you free from sin's rule over you. That, if you're a Christian, that throne in your heart is his. He's kicked off all other rivals and that it is his. There's not nothing, there's nothing else that truly has ownership over you and really rules you. No one has claim to you. Jesus is your Lord. Experientially, will you submit to him as such? Or will you deny what you really believe and let good desires rule you? Now he reigns on a throne in heaven right next to the Father. And the truth is, all your good desires ultimately are fulfilled in Jesus. Fulfilled in the Father, Son, and Spirit. What's a good desire? You desire comfort? God is the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1. You desire peace? Jesus is the peace. You desire to be loved? The Father knows you completely, warts and all, and fully loves you. And the Spirit pours the Father's love into your heart experientially. So we, we turn from this. We repent from this. And then after we've repented from this ruling desire, we turn and follow Jesus. To use Paul's language, we put off these inordinate desires and put on the clothing of Jesus. So maybe I need to correct something, but repentance includes confession, but it's not just confession. That's not the end. Repentance includes actually turning in our worship, in our beliefs, and in our actions. Paul really captures this kind of action and attitude in Colossians 3. I want you to see it because this is the fruit that should come from this. Your heart changes and moves. This is the action to take on. Jesus has secured this clothing for you. It's in your uh, uh, closet. Put it on. Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Put them on. Put them on. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you're also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. This has been secured for you in Jesus. Like, you don't have to go buy these clothes. Jesus has given you these clothes. Essentially, you've woken up in this morning, and he's laid them on your bed saying, put them on. Put them on. Put this on. What I want you really to see is how gracious the Father is in this. Because God calls us to respond, to repent 
in response to his grace, not to earn his grace. But do you see that in verse 12? Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and loved, dearly loved. So by his grace, he's chosen us, loved us, made us holy, declared us righteous. And so we, we don't repent this morning to get his grace. We repent in response to his grace. That he is gracious and compassionate, and that encourages us to come to him. We don't hide in shame this morning or in fear that he'll reject us. We go to him knowing, believing he loves us and will welcome us. Because the Lord on the throne is the Lord of glory and grace. The man I met with in my office, he's now married, he's been married for eight years, has a kid, he's kind and gracious, he's not demanding approval, but resting and living out of God's acceptance and love of him. God's grace is still transforming hearts and lives, reconciling us and sanctifying us. Family, let's respond to his grace. Father, I, I pray that we would, Lord. I feel that instruction so heavy in chapter one. To not be hearers only, but to be doers. To respond to your grace going to you. Convicted? Because your kindness leads us to run. So, so an act of conviction from your spirit, an act of conviction from your spirit is kindness, Lord. To turn us, to move us, to pull us out of where we're going, to turn our desires and our worship to you, to delight in you. So Lord, I pray you receive it as kindness, receive it as your grace repent and repent and as I pray this to you whoever is going to hear to address the Lord honestly honestly honorably Christ's name. Amen.